Let's give our band a hand this morning, huh? Man. They were great. Hey, elementary kids, you guys can go ahead and head out. Uh, Our middle schoolers heading to? Yeah. Okay, sixth through eighth grade. Head with Emily upstairs. Adults, you're stuck with me. As good as it gets today, I guess. I know that some of you are going to find this really hard to believe, um, but when I was in elementary school, I was kind of a punk. Um, some of you are like, no, that's not hard to believe at all. I was one of those, those boys that was shorter than everybody else, but was kind of a tyrant, you know, kind of like the boss people around, and uh, especially on the playground, that was kind of like my own private torture chamber. Um, I love sports. I was really competitive, so I kind of made the rules and was kind of the enforcer out on the playground. Um, I also had a really foul mouth that occasionally got me in a little bit of trouble as a youth as well. One occasion I can remember very specifically in sixth grade, we were out playing baseball, and, um, and this kid cheated, and I would have nothing to do with that. So I just lit into this kid. I mean, just every profane name that you can think of, I screamed it at this kid. And of course, um, some other kid went and told on me. And so I was busted and I got a detention, which I promptly lied about to my mom. You did it too. You know you did. I really didn't like getting caught because there was always some kind of consequence, obviously, that was going to come with that. But I was usually pretty quick to say I was sorry, hoping, hoping that somehow that would kind of lessen the penalty uh, coming my way. Um, but getting caught for me was never really a deterrent, and it certainly didn't lead to any kind of change. If anything, it kind of fueled my desire to be sneakier next time, you know, and not get caught. Uh, the way, uh, that way, I would never really have to change any of my bad habits. I just wouldn't get caught as much. And so um, I was grieved at the consequences, but not really at the sin itself. I was remorseful, but I never really changed. And today, as we've mentioned, this is the second Sunday of the season of Lent. And last week, I gave some kind of, some kind of a background historical information on, on Lent and what this season means, the season that kind of leads us up uh, to Easter. Lent was designed to be a 40-day a time period, I said around 600 or so, they kind of uh, codified it into what we have today, where it starts on Ash Wednesday and it goes for 40 days, not including Sundays, and ends on Easter. And Lent is, is supposed to be a season that kind of prepares us for what the message of, of Easter is all about. So it's a time of self-reflection, um, a time of self-examination, a time of confession, a time to really come to terms with the reality that our sinfulness was a genesis for the reason why Christ had to suffer on the cross to begin with. And we suggested last week that the cross is really the only true and accurate mirror that we have that really reflects kind of our true condition. And when you think about what the mirror really reflects to us, there's really kind of two things going on if you kind of mentally picture Jesus on the cross suffering. And those two things, on the one hand... Um, he's up there uh, because of my sin and, and all of our sin that we played a part in him uh, having to, to, to go to the cross to sacrifice himself on our behalf. 
The other part that's going on kind of at the same time is this amazing sense of, of grace and appreciation for the fact that he willingly chose to go there so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. And so it's kind of this dual picture that we see going on, and both those realities are true. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it like this. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that, when I remember when I first became a Christian, you know, that whole idea of for the joy set before him, I mean, man, not so much the joy of being on the cross and enduring all that, but the joy knowing that when that was all done and when that was accomplished, that he was going to be opening a way for every man, woman, and child forever to be redeemed, to have an opportunity to have a relationship with him and to be forgiven. And so that was the joy that kept Christ on the cross. So during this season of Lent, we're going to be taking a close look at the practices of confession and repentance. What does it mean to confess something? What does repentance really look like? How do we know if we're truly sorry or just sorry we got caught? And what does it mean to really make things right with God and our fellow man? Because you see, I think if we don't do some soul searching about coming to terms with our sin and how it impacts our relationship with God and with other people and what it means to truly repent and change, then I think that Easter won't really mean a whole lot to us. The promise of the resurrection will lose its meaning if we don't understand that, that there's something was dead to begin with. And I'm not really even just talking about Jesus being physically dead. I think more importantly, I'm talking about that each one of us has been dead because of our sin. Today we're going to take a look at the topic of worldly sorrow. What does it look like when people in this world say that they're sorry? And we've gotten a lot of that lately, haven't we? I mean, in the last couple of years, just off the top of my head, maybe two of the most uh, prominent people that came to mind for me, who do you think one is? Tiger Woods, right? That's the first one that came to mind for me. Um, we've watched some very public confessions of guys like Tiger Woods. The second one that came to mind to me was a U.S. representative from New York, Mr. Anthony Weiner, right? Like most guilty name ever given to a man. Um, both of those guys confessed their affairs and their illicit behaviors after they were caught. Neither one of them really stepped forward with that information before they had to. I'm sure they were both pretty sorry that their deviant behavior was revealed. If you're like me, I was, and probably still am, a little bit skeptical about really whether their confession is really heartfelt or not, whether it's really led to any sincere change in their life. And so what does worldly sorrow look like, and how does that differ from, from true biblical sorrow? This week, we're going to take a look just at the, the first part of that, just this issue of worldly sorrow. So we're going to start today with an example of worldly sorrow that's pretty easy to detect. I want you to open in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 9. It's at the very beginning uh, part of the, the Bible, page 45 in your pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 9, page 45. 
Let me just give you a little background on the story. Um, many of you might be familiar with kind of what's going on here. Um, the people of Israel, the nation that God has, has kind of chosen to be his people, they, they are slaves in Egypt and have been so for hundreds of years. They've been mistreated and, and cruelly uh, punished during that time. And so God has placed this guy, Moses, who you know was adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter and he kind of grew up in Egypt, but uh, he ran off after he saw how his people were being treated as he became adult and kind of understood what was going on. God calls him back and says, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to go to Pharaoh and, and tell them to let my people go. And so you kind of know how the story goes. He goes to Pharaoh, and actually God warned him in advance, Pharaoh isn't going to do it. So he says, you know, go in, let my people go. And so God says, since he's not going to do it, I'm going to have to send some, some signs, some miracles to, to show him, you know, that I mean business. And so he, God sends all these plagues on, on the people of Egypt. Um, the problem is, is that the first several that they do, even though it's, it's pretty catastrophic for the people there, Pharaoh's magicians are able to kind of mimic those miracles. And so Pharaoh's not that impressed with God. But by the time we get to chapter 9, Pharaoh's kind of running out of answers. Um, so far, he's endured the plague of blood, frogs, gnats, flies, boils, the plague on livestock, and finally, uh, a storm of hail before he's willing to admit that he might have been wrong. Let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 27. So this is right after the hailstorm has come and it has beaten down everything growing in the fields. It stripped every tree. It struck every animal in the field. It says in verse 26, the only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Then in verse 27, it says, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. He said to them, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. Skip down to verse 33. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and the hail stopped. The rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So here's a classic example of worldly sorrow. When the pain gets high enough, and only then, and when Pharaoh kind of realizes that I can't, we can no longer duplicate what your God is able to do, then I'll admit that I might have been wrong. But then as soon as the consequences and the circumstances change and things kind of go back to normal, the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart hardened, that he sinned again. So in worldly sorrow, nothing really changes in the heart of the offender, Okay, so that's one example that's, that's pretty blatant, it's pretty easy to, to catch. Now I want to talk about uh, another example from the Bible that's a, really a lot more complicated. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, page 692. Matthew chapter 27. Page 692.
You can see the heading for that chapter is Judas Hangs Himself. So let me give you a little bit of background on on the story up to this point. Judas, as many of you know, was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was the treasurer for for Jesus' ministry. He handled the money. And um, at some point, most of us know that he was kind of the guy that betrayed Jesus. Um, Most scholars kind of think um, the reasoning behind what he did um, was that uh, Judas was kind of growing impatient for Jesus to start this kingdom that he kept talking about. Remember, we've talked about in the past before, a lot of, a lot of Jews at that time uh, thought that when this, this Savior came, uh, that he was going to overthrow the Romans, that they were going to have peace and prosperity in their land. And Jesus came and he was talking about a kingdom, but it was, it was a totally different kingdom than what the world was looking for. And Judas was thinking, you know what, we keep going around talking about this kingdom, but we never confront Anybody, you know, we're not trying to, to storm any gates here or, or set up uh, a throne. And so a lot of people think that Judas uh, was just kind of getting impatient for that. And so he thought, man, if I can maybe get Jesus arrested and kind of, you know, get him right before the Romans and these Jewish leaders, then maybe it'll force Jesus to kind of take action and, and, the, and this kingdom he's talking about will really take hold. And so Judas goes to the Jewish leaders and, and it says for a sum of 30 pieces of silver, he says, you know, I'll take you where Jesus is and, and I'll turn you over to his hands. And so Jesus is praying in the garden. Judas goes up to him with these Jewish leaders and, and some soldiers and kisses him on the cheek, lets him know that this is the guy you're looking for and they arrest him and take him away to stand trial. So chapter 27 We pick up the story in verse 1. It says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, those are all Jewish, Jewish leaders, they came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, who was the, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. For I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. So let's examine Judas's confession here because it seems like uh, there's definitely a sense of of true sorrow going on in in Judas. What specific actions did Judas take? If you look at, at uh, I think, starting in verse 3, there's some very specific things that he did to kind of take some responsibility for things. Just, let's just list them off kind of in order. What does he do first? Or what does he notice first? What's that? Jesus is condemned, okay? So, and I, and I don't think he was expecting that. So as a result of that, what does he do? What's one thing that he did? Just raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, he tries to give back the money. What else does he do? Yeah. He confesses that he sinned. And there's one other thing. Yeah. He changes his mind about, okay, yeah. Let's see if that's everything. Yeah. He saw his mistake. He was seized with remorse. 
gave back his money, confessed his sin. He se- it seems like he did all the right things, right? I mean, that's a pretty thorough list of kind of taking responsibility for things. But what was missing from his confession? Becca, you said it. An apology to Jesus, right? He didn't really go to the person that he offended and ask for forgiveness and acknowledge his sin before God. Basically, Judas tried to undo his wrong by doing everything in his earthly power that he could think of to make things right, besides apologizing to the person that he'd offended. He tried to ease his conscience by giving the money back. He tried to confess his sin, that he'd made a mistake. He even tried to put in a good word for Jesus. He's like, hey, this guy's blood is innocent. He's innocent. He did everything right except admit his fault to the person that he had offended. One commentator said, undoing a wrong is like trying to unscramble an egg. You ever been there? Where you know that you've offended someone in some way? You've hurt them? And instead of your first action, just go right to the person that you've offended and just apologize and just lay it on the table and say, man, I blew it. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't really have a good excuse. If you're like me, what I do a lot of times is I try to clean everything up as good as I can behind the scenes, right? And then think maybe if I can um, clean up the mess a little bit, then I won't have to confess as much. I can make it look not as bad as it really is. So maybe I've got to go back and clear some text off my phone or, or cancel some emails out or, you know, whatever it is that we have to do. Talk to some friends of ours and say, hey, you know, when I say this to them, you're going to say, yeah, I was over at your house that night, you know, and get an alibi together, you know. The thought sometimes of humbling ourselves and admitting our mistakes is just more than our, our prideful hearts can handle. Why do you think Judas ultimately hung himself? Why do you think he ultimately hung himself? Because he couldn't take it back? Yeah. What's that? He couldn't live with the guilt? He was ashamed of what he'd done? Okay. What did that action then the fact that he chose to do that, what did that communicate? Raise your hand. I'm sorry, I didn't hear where that came from. That he couldn't be forgiven. So what, did, what does that communicate about what he believes about God? That God wouldn't be able to forgive that sin. So he had a misunderstanding of grace and mercy, a misunderstanding of who God is, a misunderstanding of who he is, Jesus says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because we'd done something to earn it. So that act communicated that there was no possible opportunity for redemption. There was no room in the story for God to to dive into that mess and redeem it. It communicated a lot. (laughs) Let me ask you this question. Could Judas have been brought back into the fold? I don't know that it's a question I've ever really pondered. 
If he had gone to Jesus and said, man, I blew it, I was wrong, I needed to forgive me, could this whole story have turned out a different way? What do you think? What say you? <laughs> thumbs up or thumbs down? Do you think that he could have been forgiven? Yeah? Well, Kyle says yes, so that's good. Judge Kellogg back there says yes, so we got two yes. Okay, good. Now listen, some, the reason why this might get complicated is because you look at the next part of the story, and some of you that know the story, you understand that, that his body, you know, after he hung himself, that that, that 30 pieces of, of the 30 coins were used to go and buy a field to bury him in, and Matthew tells us that fulfilled a prophecy from the Old Testament. So we, so we think to ourselves, well, did Judas really have an option because there was this prophecy that was saying this was going to happen anyways? So was he just doomed to his fate to fulfill a prophecy? Well, my answer would be, my non-scholarly answer maybe, is that just because it happened, God knew it was going to happen, but, but Judas still had the choice. If, if God knew that Judas would have chose the other option, then the prophecy never would have been there to begin with. I don't know. That's how I reconciled it. But I, I have to believe that there was another option. I mean, Peter screwed up pretty big, didn't he? If you know the story, the, the disciple Peter denies Jesus three times. He's brought back in. Not only is he brought back in, he, he's like the primary leader of the church. And, and he disowned Jesus. Actually, he cursed to the people that asked him, Are you, you know, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? He cursed them. I mean, what he did was, was just as treacherous. But he came back to Christ. His sorrow was different. What does this story teach us about worldly sorrow? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that worldly, worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow brings death. You see, worldly sorrow leads to guilt. And trying to work our way out of the jam. But ultimately, we can't handle the guilt. And so eventually, it leads to things like depression or, or self-apathy or just... Sometimes it leads to a rebellious spirit because we're ashamed that, that we've been kind of busted and kind of called out and we can't handle that. And so in some people, the pride comes out of them and they just kind of dig their heels even more and like, you know, you're not going to make a fool of me. In the worst cases like Judas, that guilt leads to a desire not to live any longer with the pain. You see, worldly sorrow has no redeeming qualities. Nothing good comes from it. And the product of worldly sorrow isn't a changed life, but it's destruction and defeat. Worldly sorrow doesn't move us towards God. It, it drives us away. We feel unworthy of his mercy. We have a misunderstanding of, of who he is and who we are. So we look for some kind of shortcut instead of really facing up to our sin and calling it what it is and humbling ourselves before the only one that can really make it right. And I have to admit to you that I'm, I'm really quick to say that I'm sorry in situations where I can kind of see the writing on the wall, 
that this story is not going to go very well if I don't step up and start trying to kind of apologize and takes, you know, the consequences are just going to grow the longer I wait. So I can be somebody who kind of dives in pretty quick and is like, oh man, I'm really sorry, you know. Well, of course you are because you don't want the pain of the circumstances that are going to come from that. But it doesn't really mean that I want to change. Most of us see the need for change. I don't know that I've ever met anybody who thinks that they're completely there in life, <laughs> that they, they are completely the person they want to be. Almost everybody that I know thinks, man, there's some ways that I can improve. I think most of us would even go far to say that we kind of agree with this verse in Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9. Let me get that up. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we can see how deceitful our heart is, how much we try to manipulate and control situations, how quickly we get angry or jealous or spiteful or, or this lack of forgiveness we have sometimes when people rub us the wrong way. I think we can agree that, that our heart can be pretty dark. The problem is that many of us are more apt to be disturbed by the consequences of our sin rather than the sin itself. Dealing with the root of our sin problem, which led us to those actions, that takes a lot of work. It takes time to examine ourselves and to really start to uncover, well, what was it that led me to do that to begin with? It takes a humility even to maybe invite some other people into our lives and give them some permission to speak truth to us about our character, blind spots that for whatever reason we can't see. And honestly, that's just not a step that very many people are willing to do in their lives. We only really want to know ourselves so much so that we can continue to believe about ourselves whatever it is we want to believe. You see, Judas was sorry. Judas was sorry. It says that he was remorseful. Actually, it says that he was seized with remorse. And that sounds pretty painful, to be seized by something. He obviously hadn't thought about the possible repercussions of his betrayal. But instead of dealing with this demanding spirit that he had, that tried to force the issue with Jesus, tried to force this plan that wasn't God's plan, and this, this action that Jesus was never going to do, Instead of dealing with that kind of demanding spirit that he had, he, he tried to cover things up and tried to make himself look as good as he could without confronting his own sinful heart. And the consequences for him of kind of taking that shortcut was that he couldn't deal with his conscience any longer. And his guilt kept growing and growing and growing until he just felt like he just couldn't live with the pain anymore, that he needed to end his life. And now for most of us, it's not going to get to that place. Most of us aren't going to be so overwhelmed with our, our flaws and, and our behavior towards other people that it leads to that desperate of an action. But I definitely know that a lot of us have been in situations where our actions and the guilt that we felt from that has led to severed relationships with people in our lives. Maybe it's led to divorce Maybe we've escaped into bad habits. 
Or maybe we've just allowed our heart to get so hard that our pride blinds us to the gravity of our sin and, and the impact that it has on other people around us. We just get hard and indifferent to it all. There is another way, a way that has some redeeming power to it, another way to, to go about expressing sorrow, but I'm not going to deal with that today. What I really want us to do today and maybe in this week I want us to kind of sit in and soak in the bath of our own dirt for a while. When we were down in, in uh, Nicaragua, there were these pigs, you know, just caked with dirt, digging around in the trash and, and just disgusting. And that was the image that came to mind this week. It's like, we need to be like those pigs a little bit this week. We need to wallow in the mud not even sure where we can find a hose to get clean. <laughs> we need to feel the weight of our inadequate sorrow and the pain that it causes God and, and our relationship, the walls that it puts up between us and him and, and, the, and the pain that it causes the people that we hurt around us. Because if we don't take the time to examine our motives then forgiveness isn't going to mean as much to us. If we go through this, this season of Lent without really examining ourselves and asking some really hard questions about, why do I do that? What is the action that led to that? I know that I'm sorry for it, and I want to apologize, and I want everything to be okay with people. But what really drove me to do that, to act that way, to think that way, to behave that way? That's what needs to be dealt with. Because see, if we don't do that, and then all of a sudden we get to Easter, and we show up on Easter morning, and we're talking about the resurrection, and woo, all this hope we have, and that God's going to redeem everything. If you haven't felt the weight of your sin yet, the story of the re resurrection doesn't really have a lot of power. Because what is it that you're being resurrected from? If you don't realize the depth of your, of your death, <laughs> new life isn't that compelling. The Bible says that that story, that despite who we are, that that hope that we can have in Christ because of his resurrection, that that should give us inexpressible joy. I don't want to get to the other side of Easter and look back and say, eh, colored some eggs, got some chocolate, pretty good, pretty good holiday, you know? I want to take some time here in the next few weeks and be honest with myself. This past week, I asked some people some questions about me. You know, what do people say about me? What have you heard about? What have you noticed about me? I heard some things that are just are troubling to hear about me. I'm trying to process that. I've asked some other people about it. I think we all need to do that. Take a moment to be honest with ourselves. Today, as we head into communion... I want you to, to sit in the weight of that a little bit. Ask God, Lord, make my sin real to me. Help me not to just try to get off the hook as quickly as I can so that the, the discomfort of the, of the tension in the relationship that I'm feeling with another person or with you can just be relieved quickly so it'll feel good for me. Sometimes it's okay to, that it feels like crap <laughs> and it's ripping you up inside. 
because of what you've done. That's a good thing sometimes, as much as it's not fun. Because the hope is that we won't do that again. (laughs) The pain will be so hard and we'll take it so personally that we'll realize, I can't do that to people anymore. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to pray and uh, just say whatever you need to say to God this morning as you come up for communion. It's just a reminder once again that despite who we are sometimes, that God still loved us, that there's hope there, that we've been forgiven, that his blood and his body repaired that divide between us and him. So as you come forward, you're going to tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and take it and eat and head back to your seat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, before we can get to the, the resurrection, we need to deal with, with the, the gravity of our sin, God. And, and we see these stories of these guys that actually were in your presence. Guys like Judas and Peter who were walking around with you, hearing what you were saying, seeing you heal people, seeing you forgive people. I think about the people that, that came to you that you forgave and, and your heart was so loving. You were able to communicate grace and truth at the same time. And they saw that but they couldn't accept it for themselves. Judas couldn't come to the place where he came to you in humility and said, man, I blew it. I need to be forgiven. And so he tried to clean his mess up himself and he missed out on your mercy. And it made him so despondent that he was willing to consider crazy stuff. God, we don't wanna be those kinds of people. I know that the desire of most of us here is not to hurt others. But Father, help us to kind of sit in the weight of our sin today and not just be so quick to move on to the next part of the story. God, hear our prayer right now as we silence ourselves before you.